Hi, I'm Shreen Fatik, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. When marketing a product dubbed luxury, marketers are faced with a pretty interesting conundrum. You're competing for attention and money across categories. A handbag can compete with a yacht, which can compete with an expensive bottle of liquor. That exactly is the challenge for Lee Applebaum, CMO at Patron and Grey Goose Global. On today's episode, Lee and I spoke about how transparency in a brand story becomes important when competing, working with TV, and my favorite subject, bottle porn on Instagram. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Lee. Welcome to Making Marketing. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. Um, Let's talk big picture first. You've obviously kind of done the role of a chief marketing officer for a while now. And one of the things that I keep hearing when I have CMOs on this show is how much work it is and how much more work it is today than it was for them two years ago, three years ago, a decade ago. Before I sort of say what I've noticed being the biggest changes, what do you think has changed when it comes to kind of this role of a chief marketing officer, a global chief marketing officer? What's different about it? Yeah, I don't know in absolute terms if it's more work. I have to be careful with what I say because then I'll end up with more work. Uh, I think it's different. I don't work. have enough work. Right. That's yeah. what he's saying. Everybody. Right. Be very, very careful in what I say. I, I think it's different type of work. And, um, you know, not to date myself, but the the sort of proverbial pendulum in marketing, I mean, it continues to swing one way or the other. When, when I first entered the field, things like big data, I mean, they weren't even words that existed, right? Or at least together, they didn't exist. Um, and the access to, you know, real-time dynamic data. Uh, so a lot of marketing, candidly, was more intuitive, gut-driven, uh, creative, was pretty well limited traditional, above-the-line media. And so the, the way in which we, as CMOs, spent our time, or marketers even, I wasn't a CMO, obviously, right off the bat. Um, Just born was, CMO. Right, exactly. Born to be a CMO. <laughs> it sounds like a great t-shirt. Um, was was much more on sort of instinctive marketing, on creative, and uh, certainly not Mad Men generation, way, way sure. later than that. But uh, I think that sort of typifies marketing, say, 20 or so years ago. Uh, obviously, that's evolved significantly. And several years ago, big data was, the, was sort of the catchphrase. Um, data analytics became critical. We saw marketing organizations have teams who were data scientists, um, you know, PhDs that resided in marketing departments that have never existed before. And so the type of work that we did uh, changed dramatically yet again. We now balance this gut level instinct with, um, you know, quantifying what we were doing and not only quantifying what we were doing, but quantifying it with, you know, data science and heavy right. analytics. Um, and, and that shifted. I think, you know, today, I wouldn't say we found a perfect balance. There's no such thing. But at least from where I sit, there's a healthy balance between left and right brain marketing leadership. And and so the type of work that I do now and my team does is principally focused around, I think, some gut level instinct, the sort of the art of marketing mm-hmm. and then the the science of, of marketing. And so, again, it's not more time. It's how the time sure. is spent. Uh, I think more broadly, beyond just the marketing discipline, CMOs are more accountable than we've ever been, not just to the upstream sort of rubber meets the sky ethereal marketing metrics, but to actually driving enterprise value. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I think the CMO more than ever now is truly part of the executive team, accountable to broader metrics that your CFO, your COO, your sales organization is going to be accountable to, the commercial outcomes of what we do, not just yeah. the brand outcomes. That's really interesting. And that was, um, and I want to go back to that sort of this idea that the CMO is more accountable than ever before, because I think that's very true. But l- let's talk a little bit about sort of left brain, right brain. I think... Um, I think that's true. And I think that there has been a time and a, and a bit of a shift right away from this like creativity will be all we need. Mm. And as long as we just make really creative stuff, everything will be fine. Um, and then maybe the pendulum shifted too hard. Do you do you ever get the feeling now that creativity is, you know, sort of getting a little bit commoditized, almost that CMOs, especially in you know the agencies they work with, along with them, almost have to fight a little bit harder to make sure that marketing remains at least to some level a creative discipline because it does feel that if CMOs are under more pressure than ever and it kind of relates to your second point then you know it's easier it's much easier to just say let's just do what we know works we don't need to take the big risks we don't need that again that big idea all of the things that used to be the hallmarks really of marketing is that is that a concern or sort of something you think about no your your instinct is spot on and i agree with it wholeheartedly and i i've been very vocal uh in my career about saying that um you know my angelou famously said we're, we're more alike than we're different i'm paraphrasing a little bit and i think the the risk that comes with some of the analytics is we've reduced people to ones and zeros and we begin to look and try to exploit the differences that we find in the data rather than finding the the commonality and i think that when we take a step back um you know we've evolved over millions of of years we don't change overnight and sometimes data suggests that you know human beings are wildly different every six months we change <laughs> that's certainly not true uh, sometimes data can suggest again that you and I are vastly different because it, it looks for those really really minute differences that reside in our behaviors and in our ethnography and our democ- and, and I don't I don't believe in that I look at to say, what are the things that we share? What are the behaviors? What are the traits that we share? What are the things that the human motivations and look to market to those? And that's where creative really, I think, um, finds its most relevant expression, to to be honest. Because um, that only create the big idea only works if it's big enough for everybody. Right? Yeah. I mean, well, everybody has to kind of almost everybody's or big swaths of people have to appreciate it, which is almost the antithesis of what you're saying that data often does, which is cut people down to the, that individual to a level that might not really work for that creative advertising. Right? Yes. And I think it depends in part also on the the, the vertical or even the product that you work on. Mm-hmm. Take classic consumer packaged goods. I mean, if I'm if I'm marketing toothpaste and let's say it's a toothpaste uh, for those who have dentures. Um, you and I likely not targets today anyway, maybe hopefully ever. You have no idea. No (laughs) Um, idea what's happening. You know, it is a waste of marketing resources to market to us because, you know, you can look at the data. It is suggestive that we are most likely not, we don't have dentures. Um, And it makes sense perhaps to use data science to be able to exploit some of those nuances to market more effectively to that kind of segmentation. We play in a very different world. I was going to say, you are as far as it comes from dentures. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're the ultimate discretionary product. Sometimes it feels like uh, we're not discretionary. We're highly needed. There are sometimes five in the evening where I feel like I desperately need a cocktail. But the reality is it's it's totally discretionary, and particularly in the luxury side of what we do. Um, Well, let's talk about your portfolio first, because you've got a lot of different things going on, especially with sort of last year's acquisition, a lot changed Mm -hmm. too. So let's 
let's talk about all of those different products that sort of you consider as your portfolio and then how each one is different. Yeah. So I, I joined Patron Spirits about five and a half years ago and very singularly focused on the tequila category and very proud. I mean, Patron to this day maintains a dominant market share, really created the super premium tequila category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bacardi owned about 30 percent of our company uh, for many years last year completed the acquisition of the of the company and integrated us into the Bacardi portfolio and and you know that was principally done because Bacardi has this unbelievable muscle globally to expand what we had done in the United States um, across the rest of the globe where super premium tequila is very nascent um, but a benefit of that is part of this family a portfolio of really iconic brands which is a marketer um, listen it's a treat if you get to lead one brand Brand, as I right. did and do with Patron, then invited to run Grey Goose, sort of a pinch me moment. But my colleagues across the enterprise, we have you know brands like Bombay Sapphire, so a world's leading super premium gin. Obviously, uh, Bacardi, an iconic rum in the in the category. You look at our bourbon portfolio, our single malt portfolio, brands like Martini, brands that have incredible storied equity. Um, so it's great to be part of this family of, of brands. Right. So what was that? So going back to, you know, your point earlier, which is, okay, so you're the ultimate discretionary product. Uh You are playing in a space, especially for your, uh, for Grey Goose and Patron, you're in that luxury category. The marketing changes from the toothpaste, the CPG, the detergent life, right? What does that look like? Sort of how do you big picture think about marketing a brand like that? Yeah, I mean, because we're discretionary, I would say it's about creating a rational desire, because that's what it is. It's a rational desire, particularly in the super premium space. Mm. So I'm not only making the decision to consume something that's totally discretionary, um, but I'm paying more for it. And you know, while I can make a strong argument, and certainly in our portfolio, that the intrinsics are there to back up paying more for, mm-hmm. the reality is a, a lot of it is irrational. I'm I'm buying in to the equity of this brand because it's connecting with me personally. Emotionally, um, and while we can talk about the attributes of the raw materials, about the production methods, ultimately, it's right. It, it is an irrational desire. I sound like I'm trying to talk you out of consuming our product, <laughs> right? Totally discretionary, rational desire. But I'm, but I'm a realist, right. um, and and so for us, I think going back to your earlier comment, um, that is where the real art defies the science because it is creating a rational desire. Our job is to help consumers understand why they should take what is a finite amount of discretionary spend and allocate it to our products and brands. And, you know, consumers don't think about their discretionary spend in terms of a pie chart that says, well, I have X percent for a handbag and I have X percent for shoes and X percent for spirits. It's just all discretionary. And Mm. so I and my team, we really we don't think about the tequila category or the vodka category, for example, or even the spirits category. We think about the luxury category and how do we fight for our fair share by creating this irrational desire for our products and our brands. So your competition is not, or not your your competition, but what you're competing with customer attention and money for is can be that handbag. Absolutely. Or the yacht or whatever it is. Absolutely. And I think it's very narrow if what we mm. think is we are simply competing with other spirits brands or other spirits brands even within our very specific verticals. Um, I think you've got to think more broadly. And 
consumers really think about that. It, the, the beauty, I think, of our category is they're not buying the spirits per se. They're okay. buying an experience and the role that 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 spirit plays. Think about at the end of the day and you're going to meet a friend and have a cocktail. It's not really that you're going to consume the cocktail there as an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. It's a shared experience. It's the opportunity to talk about what happened that day or that week, uh, to celebrate a moment, to catch up over time. And our ability to be a facilitator for that experience is really important. And that's, that's how we think about it. But in terms of the actual money that you are then ultimately spending to create mm -hmm. that experience, it's finite. And, and we are asking you, um, we're asking for your permission to spend it on our categories and our experiences versus other things that may make you happy. So let's talk about the asking, again, that permission to ask people to spend on their category, because I think that in general, liquor, spirits, beer, even luxury, sort of just all of these industries that are going through this really interesting, I think, time right now. And some of that is sort of how the consumer himself or herself has also changed, right? Um, what have you seen from just kind of millennial habits changing and then sort of what's coming with the next generation? Because I think that these categories are going through some really interesting changes when it comes to consumption of alcohol, what alcohol they choose to consume. And then also going back to your earlier point, it's not even just about the category anyway. It's going to be about all the other things. Millennials want more experiences. Right. They want to travel. Maybe they don't want to buy a thing. Maybe the cocktail isn't that status symbol anymore. How has that changed for you as you're thinking about marketing and who your consumer is? Yeah. You know, integrity and transparency in brands, I think, is more important than ever. And it's not just limited to millennials. I think the millennials are they've grown up in this era of transparency and things like social media that, um, you know, fact check in real time. Uh, and, and so certainly having brands and again, in a luxury spirit space where there's so much puffery, you know, mm -hmm. words like small batch, handcrafted, artisanal are loosely thrown around. Right. But that's also a new competition, right? Because suddenly you've got people who are saying, you know, oh, I, I, I don't want the big B Bacardi that I've known and right. I've known for years. Maybe I want something that nobody's ever heard of that only makes one bottle a year and I'm going to get that bottle. Suddenly your competition shifts. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is that there are some amazing things happening in craft spirits. There's also a lot of very clever marketers that sit on the other side of those bottles, creating the illusion of small and artisanal. And uh, so as big brands, and I'm very unapologetic because I think that in our case, the scale actually allows us to deliver quality that some of the smaller brands cannot. Um, but we have an obligation to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. And with brands like Patron, with Grey Goose, we've got these brilliant intrinsics, we have to really lean into them. We have to help the consumer to understand, and particularly with like a millennial, that big is not bad and small mm. doesn't necessarily equal legitimate. <laughs> uh, and the more transparent we can be and things like digital and, and social media allow us to give access unlike ever before to how do we make it? What are the ingredients that we use? Spurring on dynamic conversations with consumers about the product, about the brands, about how we make it and the ability to engage with a consumer so that when he or she challenges us on these claims, we can come back in real time and, and explain and articulate in most yeah. cases show why there's real integrity. That's so interesting, the sort of the big is not bad, because it does feel that there's, and again, this isn't even on something happening just in your category, right? There's just, you're seeing this rise of this direct-to-consumer wave. Everything that's smaller somehow does feel like it's better because 
they're supposedly, I think, and in some cases they are, upending the traditional way of doing things. They're making things faster. You don't. You can buy things easier because these are born online companies that are growing up in a digital age. And it's interesting to me that you're almost fighting against or coming up against the same challenges, but in a completely different category. How did you go about actually sort of thinking about this, you know, within your team as a marketing organization and say, okay, this is this is what we will be unapologetic about? Because I think there was another way you could have gone, right? You could have said, let's let's sort of almost forget the fact that we're really big, right? We're Bacardi, we're Gregos, we're Patron, and let's almost pretend we're almost small. Because a lot of brands are going that way. You're seeing big CPG companies almost try to erase their whatever that legacy is and say, oh, no, we're actually the really small company. Forget the holding company. Forget who we're owned by. Forget our heritage. We're smaller. Why did you decide to go the other way? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, there's a real legitimacy in it. I'm not going to deny who we are. And again, if you talk about transparency, we, we are we're not only a big company, but we're very big brands. Making spirits well is really hard to do, by the way. Um, the access to the best raw materials and ingredients is not an easy thing to come by. In some cases, they're constrained. In most cases, as is the case with our master distillers, these are men and women who have trained for decades, many of them. So the skill set that you need to be able to do it, the idea that you can be sort of this fly by night <laughs> is really tricky. Um, and it's really not true. No, and it's really not true. And, and I don't want to suggest that some of these small artisanal players are not fabulous. And I think what they do, there's an important space for for everyone. And some of the work that they are doing, reimagining the category, challenging the category, I not only welcome it, I love it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're forcing us um, to be sharper and smarter. But this, this notion that, like you said, or assumption that big is bad and small equals quality is simply wrong. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about the millennials um, bucking this trend. You know, I want the fashion label that nobody knows. I want the (laughs) pair of shoes that nobody knows. You know, the swoosh, no way. I want to have something that nobody else has. I mean, look at what happened to Allbirds, right? Allbirds Allbirds remains a fantastic product. But once it became every went everywhere and everyone started wearing it, suddenly you start seeing people say, well, now I don't want it anymore. Yeah, yeah. it's sort of the ubiquity is a problem um, and certainly in spirits. But I think we've been unapologetic about saying, challenging in the right way consumers to say, do you really value quality? If Mm -hmm. what you're saying is the reason you're purchasing small brands is because they are a higher quality product, a more artisanal product, I'm going to challenge that every day. If you as a consumer or even a bartender says, look, I just don't like big brands, that's I, I can't do anything about that, right? I can't. <laughs> sure. But generally, the argument is more around craft equals better quality. Um, or even things like environmental or social responsibility. Well, I buy small brands because they're more focused on the environment. If you look at the practices, for example, with, with Patron, the amount that we have invested into social and environmental responsibility, these are things, technologies, capital that we've deployed that smaller brands simply cannot do. And I'm, mm-hmm. again, unapologetically proud of the work that we do in, in sustainability, in SR. Um, we've got to tell that story because the the assumption, the, the normal state is, oh, big people polluting the environment, <laughs> right? Only focused on the bottom line. Sure. It's the small producer who cares about the people, who cares about the environment. And when you really get under the cover, especially in a lot of AlkBev production, that's not necessarily true. Okay. So you know that this is happening. You 
you know the company, you know, let's talk about Patron and Grego yeah. specifically. Even let's just talk about Patron. You know that this is happening. Now you have to tell people. And you should tell people in a way that, frankly, does not come across as if, well, by the way, here we are to sort of correct the notion. You've still got to kind of say it in a way that is a wink and a nod, but acknowledges that you are still the market leader. You've got the scale. And because of that, you're able to do things that other people can't. What are some of the examples, some of the ways you had to tell that story mm-hmm. or change to tell that story? And also, what were some of the cues or lessons you learned from those direct-to-consumer or smaller upstart brands that you said, we could try that? They're challenging us, then we could do this too. So here's the conundrum. The more you talk about being authentic, the less authentic people think you are, right? Because intuitively we think, well, brands that are just naturally authentic don't have to tell you that they are. And that's that's the tough part. We have this amazing story of, of authenticity, integrity, and transparency that we need to tell consumers for Grey Goose, for Patron, for all of the brands for that matter, really within the portfolio. And the more we tell consumers this that feels like we're trying to convince them of something. At least you know this. Yeah, right. A lot of marketers, I don't (laughs) think, are willing to acknowledge that. But, but, you know, it's, it's, so it's tough. It's a bit of a conundrum. But the reality is, we still have an obligation to to tell the to tell that story. And and for example, in the in the vodka category, you have brands that throw around words like handmade, slap it on a bottle, and assume that it's necessarily true because they're not being challenged from a regulatory or legislative standpoint. And and that's crazy. So, for example, in our new Grey Goose work, we're taking it head on. We're not claiming handmade, not because there aren't skilled hands that make our vodka. There are very skilled hands, but it's not a small craft product, but it is a product that has unassailable intrinsics, has great product quality, and we want to level the playing field. So our focus, for example, with Grey Goose is saying to consumers, be wary when you see handmade just scribbled on a bottle. Mm. Focus more on what sits behind that statement, what wheat or corn or whatever product they're using. Talk about the quality of the water. Who's making this? Is it traceable? Is it justifiable? Can it be substantiated? In the case of Patron, same thing. Massive brand. But what goes really into that bottle? How is it made? What care is applied after to ensure, as I said, that the environment is taken care of? Um, But it is an interesting balance. And even monitoring the social conversation, half of the audience says, thank you for telling me this. The other side (laughs) says, oh, well, you're really clever marketers. You built these juggernaut brands. Now you're trying to weave a story about integrity that isn't there. And all we can do is try to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about how you sort of expend your marketing energy, but also your marketing dollars into making sure this message is going out there. Um, Talk sort of broadly about kind of the makeup of where you spend your money. Where does most of it go? Is it um, how much of it is going to digital? How much of that has changed, especially over the last couple of years? Would be um, just kind of go over it for us. Yeah, I mean, we have really two sides of the coin. Obviously, as luxury brands, we have an obligation to focus on sort of the image-based marketing, and a lot of that is conveyed through more traditional routes. Um, so, you know, television. We can talk about it being a dying medium, but it is still vitally important. Um, has a very visceral way to communicate a brand's equity. And arguably so, coming back to life in a way, too, with sort of the rise of OTT, and you're seeing kind no of just question. better analytics there. So all the things that people complained about, I do think there's sort of this resurgence happening um, in TV. Oh, and it's a highly emotive medium. I mean, it, very difficult to replace. Whether you're watching it on first screen, which is now maybe your iPhone or your Android device, or on the traditional television, um, but it plays a role. 
print still plays a role, even out of home in in markets. But the reality is that if you look at the media pie chart, not only today, but over the last several years, increasingly the digital social slice has been growing. And it, it certainly is an important way to convey the the sort of the the equity of the brand, some of the lifestyle side of the brand. But when we talk about telling that integrity story, the transparency story, the intrinsics, nothing I think uh, sort of is better than social and digital. You can have these really digestible, hard hitting bites of information that you can share with consumers about your brand or product. Consumers can feed back real time their response to your message. And we have an opportunity then to engage in a conversation back. So if if we're talking about something that we do, for example, with Grey Goose, and someone in the mixology community bounces back and calls BS on it, our ability to respond in real time and say, no, 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 here, we have absolute integrity. Here's video, here are pictures. And, and I think more importantly, to get others in, for example, the mixology community engaged in the discussion. So it's not just about Grey Goose responding to the to the industry or to mixologists, but other mixologists engaging in that conversation and saying, no, I've seen how it's made. I have the, you know, I've, I've seen this firsthand, whether they've uh, traveled to France to experience how Grey Goose is made, or they've traveled to Mexico to see how Patron is made. Being part of and facilitating that conversation rather than necessarily driving it is an important part of why digital is so important to us. Where is most of that happening? Is that Facebook-based? Is that Instagram? Is it Reddit? I don't know. I, I keep thinking of Reddit when I think of yeah. mixologist fighting. Something about Reddit just speaks to me. No, it, it, the answer is a little bit of all, and each takes on its own form. Facebook is an important way for the bartender community to converse with one another. Twitter, Instagram is obviously critical because today's cocktails, I mean, they're beautiful. They're, I, take the recipe and how wonderful they taste for just a second. They are works of art. You know what I'm obsessed with is bottle shots yeah. on Instagram. I think there's some brands that I swear will probably do all of their Instagram marketing, just 80% bottle shots, just it's, beautiful bottles in different locations. It's it's so easy. It's so simple, but they all have amazing engagement. People just commenting on it to do bottle shots. It's funny you say that. So when I joined Patron five and a half years ago, almost all of the social was, they were bottle shots called bottle porn. And, oh, and I'm I sorry. Said, There's a technical term. For yeah, this. well, I've created it, baby. It's very <laughs> crass, but but bottle porn. And I said, enough with the bottle porn. I'm like, we are so enamored with our own brand. Let's focus on what the consumer focuses but it is on. True, right? Well, here's the deal. This. The reality is, when you get underneath it, again, data is important. The highest engagement numbers were coming from the the bottle porn. Now we're very unique at, at both Patron and Grey Goose. We have these really iconic bottles. You've got recognizable bottles. Absolutely. Right? And so when somebody would share a photo of their bottle in front of the Sydney Opera House or, you know, in some significant location in the world by a beach, by it the engagement numbers were better than everything else that I thought was more important. So bottle porn really, I love really that you went in there saying, just stop it. And then yeah. came back and said, actually, this is really working. Contrary to popular opinion, I do listen to my team. <laughs> um, and no, and the, and the data that. told us, and to this day, five and a half years later, it still performs. That said, with the rise of cocktail culture, I mean, how many times we go into a restaurant, we see people taking pictures of their food. Now they take pictures of their cocktails because they are spectacular and mm -hmm. the craft that goes into them. So I'd say we now have cocktail porn and bottle porn. Mm -hmm. um, when we can bring them both together, that's just, I mean, that's a grand slam. That sounds perfect. <laughs> um, tell me about
about a platform you maybe, I don't know, is more of an experimental platform for you, sort of in your experimental marketing budget that, again, you're trying something out with, not quite sure if it'll work, but there's something there maybe. Well, if you think about experiences and we talk about being an important part of facilitating experiences, the ability to help to help facilitate those experiences at home is really important. Now, we don't have the ability to sell our product directly to consumers. We we have distributors and intermediaries who do that for us. But partnering with platforms that allow at-home cocktail and spirit delivery mm-hmm. is really important. So do you mean sort of like the drizzlies of the world? It's exactly okay. what I what I mean. Uh, consumers increasingly are entertaining at home. They figured out through food delivery services, of which there are now hundreds, how they can make beautiful professional cuisine at home. Cocktails, not so much. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to be able to go to a website and look up a recipe. And we've invested very heavily in consumer education. You know, how do I make those beautiful cocktails that I experience at the wonderful bar? Um, But it's quite another thing to help facilitate the ingredients. And so there are partners now that deliver cocktail courier or drizzly that allow consumers to have delivered to their home all of the ingredients yeah. that they need, it's like all the, blue the tools. apron of cocktail making. Absolutely. Um, and, and to help them make those cocktails to seem like professional bartenders when they entertain. And that's a really important way for us to connect with consumers as well. And then they increasingly share those photos, share that cocktail porn with the bottle mm-hmm. um, as they entertain at home. And that makes for great content for us to help syndicate as well. Yeah. Is that, it's funny that, because, you know, yes, you can't, you can't directly sell your product, but I do think sort of the rise of kind of, you're seeing some companies starting to experiment with their own kind of DTC. You've seen it in beer a little bit now um, with kind of starting to think about how e-com and how to best now within regulatory environments figure out a way to do this. Any kind of plans or any kind of thoughts there on how how you guys might think about sort of going into direct-to-consumer yourselves? Because obviously at home is now clearly as important as people ordering this at bars, right? Yeah, I mean, for us, it will be indirect-to-consumer from a logistics standpoint, but as a practical matter as marketers, our conversation is very, very direct. Um, so we're leveraging partners to actually facilitate that that sale or the delivery, but that, that sort of can sit behind the scenes. For the consumer, what they want to know is, how do I get access to the, the spirits, the cocktails, the recipes, the preparations, the ingredients, when I want them, where I want them, and how I want them? And in that regard, we're very agnostic. Whether it's directing you to your favorite bar or restaurant to be able to find that perfect cocktail, we want to facilitate that. If it's, I'm entertaining at home in 30 minutes and I've, oh my gosh, I've just found out that wine's not going to cut it. I have to have a cocktail. The ability to help them one click to be able to get exactly what they need is important to us. And we spend an appropriate but disproportionate amount of time on that as an organization talking about how do we facilitate that? Because we certainly have spent a lot of time in the on-trade. How do Mm -hmm. we do it? Which is vitally important to us. But I think with, again, all that's going on in in in-home entertaining, we've got to be part of that as well. And again, be agnostic. When the customer wants us, we've got to be able to deliver. Absolutely. Uh, Last question. I'm curious about, you know, if there's a platform or app or social platform that you would love to do more on, but because sort of it just doesn't work maybe for your category, but as a marketer, you're sort of curious about it. I would love to try something on it. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, we've been very successful. I think not only the leading but very innovative platforms to be able to always find a way to connect with and and leverage them. I do think some of these some of the delivery 
platforms, we have yet to, to crack. I mean, in Europe, for example, Amazon has done a lot. Again, regulatory allows them to do things that perhaps in the U.S. they can't do today. Um, but no, I, I think anytime we can better leverage technology to enhance the consumer experience, that's where we want to be. And it's not just commerce. It's also helping them understand the transparent story of our brand, helping them understand, you know, how do I serve or make great cocktails? Technologies that empower that where we need to be, but we haven't found any obstacles to leveraging that. Really, if anything, it's imagination is the barrier, not regulatory. Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for the time. And that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing a Show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Zangol. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show, Making Marketing, and leave us a review and a rating, hopefully five stars. It helps you listeners find us. I'll also read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.